0: Hello, you're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. Traditionally, biologists peer down their microscopes and samples to determine what a given cell looks like and how it functions. They then manipulate these cells to see what changes under various genetic or chemical perturbations. This is time-consuming and meticulous work. But thanks to the pioneering research of our guest and her team, we can now automate what the human eye sees through the microscope and coded into data that can be automatically analyzed.
1: Dr. Anne Carpenter works at the Broad Institute as the senior director of the imaging platform and as an institute scientist. It was during her PhD that she realized she was more interested in finding out how to answer a question rather than what the answer to the question was. Nearly 20 years ago, she designed a method for coloring and analyzing cell components to develop quantitative profiles. Together with Stuart Schreiber, founding member of the Broad Institute, they developed the Cell Painter Assay. She later went on to develop the software called Cell Profiler, the first open-source cell image analysis software, with her collaborator from the Broad Institute, Dr. Ray Jones. Her work seeks to digitize the intricacies of what the cell looks like
0: and how it functions over time. These data can then be used to quantify how cells change during disease or in response to drugs. But what data can we now get from cellular images, and how does it help us turn messy biological problems into well-defined and solvable computations? Anne Carpenter, welcome to Theory and Practice.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) Um, So to start off, let's go back in time. Can you tell us about your path in life? I know that you grew up on a farm in Indiana. Did you always know you wanted to be a scientist? (laughs)
2: <laughs> no, not at all. I um, I recall really loving all of my subjects pretty equally, but I had a particular dislike for a lot of scientific things. My grandfather gave me a science kit for Christmas one year and it came with a, uh, a frog in formaldehyde. And um, I was so completely disgusted that it uh, put me off for another few years as well. But it wasn't until college that, again, I liked all of my subjects equally, but it became very clear that a lot of people didn't like organic chemistry. A lot of people didn't like, you know, physics and, and math. And so um, I trended a little bit more in that direction. But I never went all the way towards the computer science side, which is now where I reside. I really uh, stuck to biology in college, at least because it seemed like the field of science that had the most kind of interesting mushy problems, things weren't so cut and dried and not not so much was known yet about how the world works. And so it, to me, that was the really attractive thing about biology.
0: And you know, tell us about your time as an undergrad, and then your experience as a grad student and postdoc.
2: Yeah, so then uh, I, I majored in biology for undergrad, and then went off to my PhD at the University of Illinois also in biology and focused on cell biology specifically because I just thought the the intricate mechanisms of how cells work were absolutely beautiful. I was uh, really attracted to microscopy specifically because you could really see things happening. Um, and then it wasn't until the late, late tail end of my PhD project where I needed to, I needed to capture tons of images on a particular microscope that was not automated in any way. And so it, it became necessary to learn enough of programming to be able to make the microscope run unattended. So I had a choice. Do I spend the next three months literally sitting at the microscope scanning for fields and manually collecting images? Or do I spend the next two months programming the microscope and then um, and then let it go on its own for the rest of the summer? And so I thought it'd be fun to give it a try to do the automation and um, especially the image analysis of that automation. And as I figured those things out, it became clear that this is what I probably should have been doing from the Beginning because I absolutely love the software engineering aspect of of what I had to do that particular summer.
0: I mean, you know, one of the things I've always admired about your career, Anne, is that there are a lot of people who started out as computationalists and then end up as biologists. Eric Lander, Aviv Regev, two people that you and I both really admire, kind of followed that path. But I think you're really remarkable in that you went at it the other way. As you think about lessons learned and in hindsight, what was good and bad about that decision? And also, when you think about yourself today, Where on the spectrum of biologists to data scientists do you see yourself?
2: Yeah, so I I can answer that first, that I I really do see myself as pretty squarely in the middle. I see my my mission in life is to take um, messy biological problems and try to design experiments and design strategies that turn really messy biology into really solvable computational problems. So that translation role is what I really see myself doing within my lab and also, you know, just more broadly in the scientific world. I don't have any regrets about the path that I took to get to where I am because I think you know you could you could look at my story pessimistically and say, um, here, here's a woman who is the daughter of an engineer, the sister of an engineer who excelled in in calculus and math and chemistry and physics and all these hard scientists. And yet why didn't she go into computer science uh, back in the day? And you know the answer is I was, Kind of a girly girl and didn't see myself as a nerd and didn't really want to be um, in that kind of a domain, I suppose. I mean, I think I really am a classic case of somebody who, if gender roles were different, I grew up in Indiana, you know, that's that's another aspect of it, if gender roles were different, I probably would have been a computer scientist from the first place, but I think looking at it as the optimist that I am it's it's really been beautiful to see how the the strands of my interests and you know culture being the way it was when it was uh, guided me towards this path which has turned out to to just be a really wonderful and satisfying path.
0: Can you explain to a general audience what exactly your research is and and how it works?
2: Yeah, sure thing. There's really two main threats, I would say, over the uh, past 14 years that I've had my independent lab. The first is just helping biologists extract what they want to extract out of images. So they have in mind very specifically, I want to measure this thing. Can you help me measure this thing? And in that case, um, originally we wrote Cell Profiler, which is this open source software that's cited a couple thousand times a year now. And that software is designed to make it easy for an end user biologist, a kind of point and click biologist to be able to configure. An image analysis pipeline to measure stuff they care about. Um, And it does involve, uh, of course, um, some machine learning. But the other side of the group is entirely data science driven. The other side of the group is focused on maybe there's more to images than what a typical biologist is thinking about or looking for or can qualitatively see by eye. So what about those cases where the biologist can perturb a system, but they don't necessarily know what response they're looking for yet? Um, So they maybe have um, patient cell lines from schizophrenic patients, as compared to matched controls that do not have mental illness. If we compare those two patient cell lines, A biologist might think, oh, I could look for this, I could look for that, but why don't we just measure everything you can possibly measure um, with whatever stains we can possibly think of and just look in a really unbiased systematic way for any difference? And if we can do that for one disease, why not do it for 2000 diseases? There's nothing customized about the process of looking in an unbiased way. So let's just stain the cells with a bunch of stains. Let's measure as many features as we can, perhaps extracting features with with deep learning or, or classical image processing. And uh, let's look for differences um, where the biologist might not know what they're looking for. And so this latter part of the group um, and of of this field is is known as image-based profiling, where if you're familiar with transcriptional profiling or proteomic profiling, it's a very similar concept where we just measure as many features as we can. And then the similarities between samples or the dissimilarities are what, what can help us to identify disease mechanisms or identify a response to a drug that is going to be effective.
1: You use this word "messy" a couple times for biology, yeah. and you know we're living things, and we are messy, and we make big messes. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm curious what like how how you how you think about that concept or the transition from mess in the real world to ordered understanding uh, in the in the context of your career.
0: And, and as a mother of five, Anne, I know you've seen a fair number of messes
2: of uh, biologically oriented <laughs> messes. Yes, that is, that is also true. <laughs> Uh, the way i see it um i think a, a driving part of my personality is try to t- t- attempt to create organization um, among chaos um, and you see that in my my personal life my family life with five kids uh clearly being organized is an important part of uh, of that uh, that social structure not collapsing um being trained in biology you get a great appreciation for just how complicated and interrelated all of the, the structures are so when you look at a signaling pathway maybe the best way to explain it is when when i'm i'm trying to bring a computer scientist into this world and and explain, you know, you really wish it were the case that, okay, well, we're going to activate this gene. And then all those genes go up and these other genes go down. And therefore these protein levels go up and those go down. And this protein does this and that protein does that. But when you actually dig into any one biological story, it's a total mess. It's, you know, this, this gene goes up, but, oh, wait, only in this cell type, not that cell type, but, oh, actually it does in that cell type. If it's in, the presence of too much oxygen. But if there's enough of this going on, oh, but then it does go up, but then it immediately goes back down because there's a negative feedback loop. And it just, you end up, if you look in the Deeply into the biology of most things, you just you you could spend decades of your life studying a single protein and its behavior and uh, and so on in 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 just a single cell context. Um, so what I see as my as my role is trying to find the um, Achilles' heel or the kind of sweet spots where where some part of biology can be systematized and some part of it can be made into some sort of orderly fashion so that when you carry out an experiment the rank ordered list that you get at the end of of drugs or of genes actually is is meaningful enough that it can produce some useful biological knowledge
1: how how do you pick those problems right that seems to be the art Right, So you do a lot of biology, and then you've got this very rigorous toolkit in computer science, but then there's this art of finding exactly those questions that can yield to that kind of approach.
2: I I see. um, I suppose... If I were going to give advice to someone to think about where to find these kinds of things, it's it's to look for the bottlenecks. What's the hardest part of any particular process, and what why is it hard, and what is limiting, and is there is there any sort of technology that could help um, to alleviate that bottleneck? So when I think most of my work is focused on the drug discovery process, and um, and so looking, you know, there's plenty plenty of bottlenecks to choose from along that whole process, and so choosing problems along that pathway that can be accelerated in some way has been a pretty fruitful way to go for for my career so far.
1: So you lead the the carpenter lab at the Broad Institute and along the line of what you were mentioning before half your team comes from the cell biology background and then half have a computer science or software development background. So it seems like you're you're even in the context of your group you're building this interdisciplinary perspective into the team dynamics. What have you learned about uh, kind of getting the best or constructing a cross-disciplinary team like this?
2: The... Chief criterion for, I would say, people joining my lab, the two top criteria I would say is that they're smart and curious on the one side, but then also have pretty low ego on the other side. And, you know, that's not necessarily the um, selection criteria used for maybe most folks at Harvard and MIT, um, low ambition or, you know, sort of low ego. But I think what really works well about folks in my group is a willingness to, um, or just an interest and an excitement about learning about areas they, they are not currently aware of. And that uh, dynamic works really well going in both directions, I find.
0: You know, Anne, I've heard you say that your passion in life is accelerating the progress of drug discovery. Can you say a bit more about how your work can help do this?
2: I can say a lot more. <laughs> <about> <laughs> please,
1: please do. <laughs>
0: at,
2: <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, what's, what's hard about summarizing is that there's, I don't know, maybe 15 largely separable steps in, in a typical drug discovery pipeline, and we found ways to use images and image data along almost every single step. So from designing better, smaller and better chemical libraries that show more diversity, more biological diversity, as opposed to just screening millions of compounds, many of which are kind of kind of similar to each other. So that's at the very beginning of the pipeline, designing better assays where the biological outcome actually yields drugs that are more likely to be effective in, in human systems to now, um, just in the past few years, it's become clear that we can use image-based data to predict the outcome of assays that would normally require millions of dollars to carry out with physical cells and physical drugs. It seems like predicting those assays using machine learning is becoming pretty feasible for at least a subset of the assays that are typically run in real life, in the real world. So... Yeah, it's it's the it's the it's the whole pipeline. We've we found a lot of nice niches where um, using image-based data and machine learning can be really helpful.
1: It would be great to dig into that that mention that thing you casually mentioned, which is that you can look at cells and you can predict the outcomes of assays. Right. The the first time I ran across this concept from your work, my mind was a little bit blown in the sense that. Just looking at cells can tell you a lot about what's going on inside of them, which seems like a natural concept, you know, but uh, I would love to hear you kind of walk through this idea and how you arrived at it as well.
2: It's it's an, a really interesting thing because on the one hand it feel, it totally feels like magic and it's the kind of thing that um, kept me up at night for you know quite a few years as it was developing and it sure seemed like it was working but I was really nervous well you know what if there's a technical artifact what if there's some kind of systematic bias that's making it look like it's working but it's not really working so on the one hand it it works so well it feels almost magical and or it makes you nervous whether it's really real on the other hand if you're a cell biologist and you've spent a lot of time looking at cells it's actually not so mysterious after all, because the basic concept that environmental conditions, whether it's gene perturbations or temperature or oxygen or chemical perturbations, um, drugs, all of those things can cause the cell to respond in a certain way. And there's just a rich variety with Images are, are, of course, the the darling of machine learning in general because there's just so much information in the pixels that are present. And there's so much cleverness required to extract that information that it just provides this tremendous, rich, high dimensional readout that turns out to be really powerful.
0: You know, one of the things I've heard you say, and you said it just now, is the importance of freeing ourselves from our preconceived notions of how things work and instead let the data tell us what's going on. You know, let me be a little provocative. Are you saying that we should get rid of hypothesis-driven science?
2: <laughs> not, not at all. I, I think that the hypotheses come in once you get the prediction. Once you get the predictions out of a model, the very next step is okay. Let's formulate a hypothesis and um, and test it the sort of old-fashioned way. And so, every experiment that that we attempt where we're making predictions, it's really crucial to follow up on those predictions in a way that allows us to. Generate good old fashioned hypotheses about what's what's going on, and that's where we we dig into some kind of messy biology.
0: Maybe you could walk me through the life cycle of one of your favorite projects or collaborations. You know, what disease? How did you go about uh, doing the screen? What were the hypothesis driven questions that came out of it?
2: Yeah, so I, I can take as an example a collaboration that we started. I believe, more than a decade ago now with McLean Hospital. Bruce Cohen and Donna McPhee are researchers there. And the fascinating thing to me about psychiatric disease is just what a wild frontier it is. Um, if you compare it, for example, to cancer research, in cancer research, we know so many of the players that are involved. Um, it's complicated, of course, but we know all these proteins. We know who phosphorylates whom and when, and um, and we know uh, which some subsets of drivers and some sets of of passenger kinds of mutations and and so on. So it's just an incredibly Rich area in terms of what's known already. If you compare that to psychiatric uh, illness, it's really shocking how little is known and how difficult it is to study. So, if you want to study cancer and you want to know if your drug is working, you take a cancer cell, you put it in a dish with a drug, and the cells die, and you say, "Hooray, I have cured cancer <laughs> at least in a dish." Um, but with psychiatric disease, how exactly do you test things in vitro in in any way that's meaningful? And even even mouse models of of various disorders are not exactly the greatest. And maybe the drugs aren't metabolized quite the same way that they would be in human cells. So it's really a wild frontier. So this this project that we conceived 10 years ago was definitely a high risk, high reward kind of project the, the kind that um, that I can solidly claim was not fundable by most kinds of funding agencies. But we decided to, to do it anyway. The reason it's taken 10 years is because it's always been people's side project, we you know, we, we work on it for a few months and get too busy and then you know, come back to it later. So basic concepts is this. The researchers we collaborate with have a really lovely set of patient samples that have been really nicely controlled. So they have people who have been carefully diagnosed with different types of mental illness, including schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, and major depression. So these are kind of a spectrum of disorders that in, in some cases share some features, in some cases, for example, with depression, it's a bit, have sort of opposite sorts of phenotypes in the human condition, and so, Taking those patient cell lines, what the researchers did was plate cells from from each patient in a dish, stain them with a few stains. Mitochondria and uh, DNA were the chief things that they were staining for. And what we did is look in a very unbiased way what is different between these different classes of patients, so these, these four illnesses as compared to carefully matched controls, are, is there anything that the cells are showing us by their structure that is different among them? And what we found is that there is a difference in how the mitochondria are spread through throughout the cell. In, in other words, their localization from the outside to the inside is, is different. And what's really exciting is that the phenotype that we saw for the schizophrenic patients was sort of the opposite of the phenotype that we saw for the depressive patients, which is what one would predict. Um, so it's pretty exciting because reducing a really complicated mental illness to something that you can study in cells in a dish is extraordinarily helpful. And we would not have gotten there if we hadn't looked in a very unbiased way because most biologists would not have known what to look for a priori.
1: And that's what I think is is fascinating about this work, especially given the contrast with cancer, it's very obvious in a dish when a cell has cancer because it keeps growing. And when you also look in a person that has cancer, that can also be obvious, especially in the late stage. But with with mental illness, it's not visible.
2: And, and there's no diagnostics even beyond talking to a person, which is to me just mind-blowing in, in this day and age that we haven't figured anything out very molecularly about these disorders.
1: Exactly. And I view what you're doing as making the invisible visible in a way.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's really visionary,
0: Anne, because uh, these are diseases not just of the brain, but of the mind. Uh, it takes a special person to say, I'm going to go look at them in cells in a dish. Uh, I really, uh, very, very amazing.
2: Okay, so the, the worst part that you, that you didn't um, pick up on is I didn't say which cell types we were using. And so, you know, <laughs> one would would expect that if you want this experiment to work, you should probably use brain cells. Um, oh, that's what the, I was
1: assuming. I thought these were neurons.
2: <laughs> right, well, it turns out people don't want to give you their brain cells usually. Um, the only oh. way you can you can typically get brain cells is, you know, on the off chance that someone happens to have cancer and they get a biopsy, you might get some nearby brain cells um, as a result. But generally speaking, people aren't willing to give them up. Up. And so this is a, this entire series of experiments, which is why this was an unfundable project, was done on fibroblasts, which are skin cells, skin cells taken from, from patients. And so who in their right mind goes and, and studies um, mental illness in skin cells? And it turns out that um, it actually is quite sensible. Once we found the mitochondrial phenotype, it sort of fit with a lot that is known. So with these disorders, they they aren't just disorders of of the mind. They also come along with, in some cases, some skin conditions and also some general metabolic, you know, j- just general metabolism. For example, in depressive patients, it, is slowed down, and so it, it makes sense that we we were able to see these in retrospect. But you know, at the time, it was a, a little a little less clear that this would work out nicely.
1: So that that really is. Um you know, in line with doing initially hypothesis-free science.
0: Uh, Going back to the question of drug development, Anne, correct me if I'm wrong, but your work has actually led to something like five different clinical trials that are now ongoing. Is that correct?
2: So the the couple of ways that we've been helpful, one is that our our software cell profiler has been used to identify particular drugs that um, in the kind of classic sorts of assays where the biologist knows what they're looking for, they just need some software to help them measure it. And so in that sense, um, the software has, has led to a couple of drugs being effective in mouse models in the academic environment, and then in some cases moving into clinical trials. There's one case where the software is actually used in a clinical trial, so this personalized medicine clinical trial showed successful results where they basically took cancer cells from a a patient's tumor, grew them in a dish, and and divided them into 100 batches. And then in each batch, they gave each batch a different anti-cancer drug and looked to see for this particular patient, which of these drugs is going to be most effective. So the image analysis was was very simple for that kind of a project. A cell profiler could easily handle that. But it's just really neat to see that it was being used in that kind of an environment, which I, I never would have anticipated. Now, the work that we've done that's led to the most clinical trials has been on the the data science machine learning side of the group, where this pattern matching and this identifying disease phenotypes is, in an unbiased way, is the key driver. And so that work has been done mostly under the umbrella of Recursion, which is a pharma company, a biotech uh, startup. They currently have four drugs that are in clinical trials following the basic process that I described you know, in in the example I gave, we had patient cell lines from schizophrenia and all these other mental illnesses. Uh, Recursion's approach is to identify genes that are known to be, uh, where mutations are known to be causative, loss of function mutations are known to cause disorders. They take those genes, knock them down, and then look for an impact on the cells in a really systematic way. So if you're thinking about hypothesis-free research, I I think what's really neat about this kind of systematic approach is it's not that you couldn't come up with a hypothesis for each disorder. If you have a hundred million dollars and a fleet of 300 people, sure, go ahead and make the most customized assay you can think of for your disorder. But if you are working, for example, in the space of rare diseases, where there's thousands of rare diseases, and many of them, no one has spent even a minute trying to figure out what the mechanisms are because there's just not enough researchers to go around. In those cases, you could go the hypothesis route, but it's so much more efficient to to go the unbiased route where you treat all the diseases the same. Um, You say, and I'm gonna look in cells and let the cells tell me which of these disorders, is there a nice screenable phenotype that I can find in a dish? And it it won't be 100% of the disorders, but even if it's a small fraction, that's that that's good enough to, to pick some ho- low-hanging fruit and put drugs onto the market. And so that's the, the general approach that they've been taking. And it's been um, pretty wildly successful so far.
1: That, that's excellent. I, I'm, one thing that seems kind of central to what you're doing is the concept of deep learning. And inside of that, the concept of an embedding, um, which seems like a uh, turning cells into into numbers or at least that that kind of process i was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit
2: well it might be a little uh, disappointing on the on the technical side because we've and i think this is a bit of a trademark of my lab is that we um, our main focus is really on the end application and on, on solving the biological problems. And sometimes we can do that with not so fancy methods. And I would say the majority of what we've done so far has been using relatively non-fancy methods. So using classical image processing to extract a few thousand features from each cell and their kind of normal shape and, and intensity and texture metrics that, that anybody would know how to do. But we're, we're just right at the cusp I would say right now of transitioning to using deep learning methods. And, um, Given that we've we've gotten so much momentum out of the classical methods, we're just on the cusp of seeing what deep learning can do in the in this space, and it's one of those things that you know, as you're building the airplane while you're flying it, there's this new advancement, but you're not quite sure if it's worth disrupting the uh, the the direction that we're going at, at the moment to to do some fancy new add-ons. But um, we we're really right at the point where that is starting to happen.
1: I like the very pragmatic approach that you're taking, which is use whatever tools it takes to solve the problem. I wanted to back up a little bit, um, just because it's been kind of percolating in my head, and I have to ask it again. So you, you mentioned that in your work on mental health, those experiments were done on skin cells. So are you saying that mental health conditions are systemic? I mean, that they're, they're body-wide so that your skin can be as depressed as your mind?
2: That seems to be the case for these particular illnesses that we've studied so far. And I, I certainly wouldn't say it's a blanket statement that's true for, for every mental illness. And likewise, you know, for every kidney disease, will it be visible in, in neurons? I don't know. Um, so I, I think it's really an empirical question. But given that it's so easy to do certain kinds of experiments, let's pick the low-hanging fruit where the simplest possible model system does allow us to answer the question uh, and then work our way up from there. So. Let's let's cure all the diseases you can using fibroblasts in a dish, and then maybe we can move on to using three dimensional organoids of, of of liver cells or or brain cells um, if we need to, and and uh, and then see if we can cure the next tranche of them.
1: So, do do you think that these kinds of findings would eventually lead to your software being used on the desktop in a doctor's office?
2: Nope. <laughs> 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 no, no, I, I, I think it's really mostly that we'll, I mean, I, I suppose it means, what it depends on what you mean by the doctor's office. I mean, certainly the, the drugs that we developed, you know, will, will pass through a doctor's sure. office as they're writing prescriptions. Um, I think when when software is used in a more clinical setting, I think the personalized medicine example I gave is, is probably the closest example that it would actually be used near a doctor's office. But I I think that's relatively uncommon. Um, Generally speaking, I think for diagnostics and that sort of thing, there's groups that are really heavily focused on this sort of diagnostic pathology domain.
0: And thank you so much. This was wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Sure. Huge thanks to Ann Carpenter. That was just an awesome discussion. So, uh, you know, now I'd like to switch into the hammer and nail portion of the show, which is always one of my favorite parts because I get to talk to Alex. And to remind our listeners of the origin stories of this, a belief that I think Alex and I share is that biological progress happens when there are people who have important driving scientific questions, and then they can marry them to technologists with new tools to address them. And during my medical training, I was always in the setting where I was exposed to important questions of medicine and, you know, started to think about what technologies would be ripe for them. And of course, we live in the era of the data sciences and started having a lot of great conversations with Alex and other people about what problems in biology could be most addressed with the tools of data science. And at some point, there started to be a real community. Uh, We were really having a lot of fun. And we kind of ran into a scalability challenge, which is that there's only so much beer you can drink. My wife was getting increasingly cranky uh, about me not coming home on time for dinner. And so we started a discussion about how to scale this effort. So we started a meetup in Boston called Hammer and Nail, where roughly half the attendees were people that had backgrounds in clinical medicine or biology or product management. And they were all people who had kind of problems to solve. And then we'd also have a set of people that were computationalists with new technologies uh, that could be brought to bear on important problems in medicine. And we'd go around at the start and ask everyone to say, do they have either a nail, which is to say a problem to solve, or a hammer. Uh, and then everybody would vote on one person from each bucket, and the two would give kind of impromptu chalk talks, and you know, we'd have beer and nachos, uh, and a good time was had by all. And after a couple of years of this, we decided that we wanted to scale it further, and that's how this podcast was born, an attempt to have kind of a bigger discussion on the interface between life sciences and data sciences. We just had an awesome discussion with Anne Carpenter, Alex, and one of the things that struck me about her approach is what an unusual marriage of the hammer and nail she chose and and how astutely she chose it. Psychiatric diseases are not just diseases of the brain, they're diseases of the mind. And in general, CTs and MRIs are not useful in diagnosing them. Um, And the idea that an image of a cell, uh, let alone a fibroblast, could actually show the hallmarks of psychiatric disease is really kind of amazing to me. Uh, And after the discussion, I did a little bit of reading on, on her work. And as I understand it, a lot of what she does boils down to feature learning. So could you tell me a little bit more about what feature learning is, where it came from, how it developed and who uses it and why today?
1: Anthony, I think that Anne chose one of the most powerful and useful hammers that's in the machine learning toolkit today in order to address her problems, which is to understand the cellular basis of disease. So feature learning or representation learning is at the heart of what is commonly referred to as deep learning or you know the use of neural networks to solve problems. But it, this idea that you can featureize the world or turn something that doesn't look quantitative into a list of numbers, that's a very old concept, a very old idea. And in computer vision in particular, it has a very long tradition. And so this is in fact how you know, many different computer vision programs started is let's say you've got a lot of images and you want to learn, yes, there's a cat in it, or no, there's not a cat in it. Uh, that's your task. It's a, it's a silly one, but let's just say that that's what you want to do. You could obviously replace that with, yes, I want to detect if this, uh, these set of cells uh, are from a person with a disease or, or not. Um, but let's stick with the, the cat as an example. So the, the first thing you've got to do is take this image, which can be really any size, and turn it into a much smaller set of numbers. Um, That's just kind of a a requirement before you start to do machine learning is to take a very, very big set of numbers and then turn it into a much smaller set. So it's more manageable. So what people would typically do before deep learning is they would have a set of handcrafted features that they thought were useful. So maybe you've built a, a cat ear detector and a cat eye detector and a cat nose detector, and you run all those individual little detectors and uh, each dimension of your uh, featureization of that image is, yes, there's a cat ear, no, there's not a cat ear, yes, there's a cat nose, no, there's not, et cetera. And so these are all very handcrafted features that you might've spent a long time building up. And then you feed that into a, an algorithm, a model or a classifier that then can take all those individual features together and decide, yes, there's a cat or no, there's not a cat. So in the case of our cat part Featurizations, the model just says, are all the cat parts present? And if so, yes, there's a cat in the image. Of course, in practice, it ends up getting a little bit more subtle or messy than that, but that's the rough idea. Now, the innovation that came along in deep learning is to not separate the model, the thing actually deciding yes or no, there's a cat from the featurization. And so the idea is to start from the raw pixels in the image and to learn the kinds of featureizations that are most useful for solving a given problem, in this case, detecting the presence or absence of an object. And what happens in the process of training these types of models, and now this is happening really all over the place. I would say every major pharma company is using these types of models on images of cells. At Google, we're certainly using these types of models to analyze images uh, in our products, like in Google image search. What's happening is that in the process of learning both the featureization and this decision maker, you learn better features. And sometimes you even learn more general features. And this can be useful in really surprising ways because the features can tell you something surprising about what you're looking at that you might not have originally been able to discover. So what was the kind of first paper that really proved this out? Like, and what was kind of, where did the idea come from and who did it? Boy, that's a hard one to answer because it was as many great ideas built up from lots of little pieces. The paper that struck me most is not in images like what Anne was working on, but applying feature learning to words and to natural language. And there was a a technique called Word2Vec. And by now this is ancient history. There's been many follow-up works on top of it. But what they were doing was turning words into vectors as opposed to images into vectors. And what they found is that not only were these featureizations good for making predictions. So for instance, you could take all the word embeddings in a sentence, you could add them up or average them, and then you could predict, hey, is this a sentence that's positive or negative, right? Which is actually a challenging problem. So what they found on top of that was, is that they could do arithmetic with these features. So if you turn uh, the word king into a a vector and you subtract it from the vector for the word queen, you get something that's roughly equal to if you were to do man minus woman. So that arithmetic is basically equivalent to analogies, right? So you can do Paris minus France, and that's roughly equal to Rome minus Italy. So you can learn all these different associations between Concepts in natural language through their featureizations, and you, nobody ever told the model that these analogies were true it 's just that in the course of uh, learning how to predict the next word or predict a held out word, which is how these uh, models were generally trained they 've learned these kinds of associations and that 's really the power of feature learning is learning what what might be hidden structure inside of a very large data set
0: now you know tell me more about Besides uh, applications in natural language processing, what are some areas, other areas that have been transformed by representation learning? And also, how does it show up in what Ann Carpenter does?
1: There's a couple areas where representation learning is really beginning to have a large impact. In, In the space of natural language, one area that is particularly fascinating to me is in analyzing electronic medical records. So, Here, a goal for a doctor might be to say, uh, what is the actual disease that this person has? Or what's the history of this person? Or just find all people that have a particular disease. And word embeddings can be used to search through electronic medical records. Now, that's to say there's many other areas in which feature learning and representation learning has had an impact. I actually would struggle to imagine an application area of machine learning where representation learning hasn't had an impact. Uh, it's, It's absolutely pervasive and kind of part of every uh, model building exercise. Awesome. Um, And, you know, how does it show up in Anne's work? So in Anne's work, it's particularly interesting because what she's done is she's learned feature representations of cells in both diseased and non-diseased states. And so she can use these vectors as hallmarks of disease. So she can turn cells from a patient's body into a list of numbers and then discover whether or not these points in high-dimensional space come from a cloud of points from disease or a cloud of points from health. Uh, and that can be used for diagnostic tools or for a deeper understanding of the disease.
0: You know, this is super interesting. One of the guests we're going to have in a few weeks is uh, my good friend, Carolyn Euler, And it's interesting, going back to your king is to queen as man is to woman analogy, one of the things that Carolyn has done is trying to apply those embeddings to the ANDs data type. So you say, if this drug has this effect on a fibroblast, can then I then predict uh, its effect on a myocyte and have it kind of translate the data point in the same direction in a parallel way? And she's done great work to kind of really construct the latent spaces to accomplish this kind of alignment of uh, vectors. So I think this is a really cool area that we'll re- be revisiting again later in the show.
1: I definitely agree. There's all kinds of links to other concepts that I'm sure we'll touch on.
0: Excellent. Next week on Theory and Practice, we will be speaking to Professor Sir Rory Collins, who's the chief executive of UK Biobank. He's also a real hero of mine.
1: Then later in the series, we will be speaking to UC Berkeley's Professor Jennifer Lisgarden, Genentech's Aviv Regev, and GV's Krishna Yeshwant. If you've got any questions, email us at theoryandpractice at gv.com or tweet at gvteam. We'd love to hear from you. This is a GV podcast
0: and a Blanchard House production. Our producers were Hilary Geit, Lily O'Mahaney, Nico Raufast, and Rosie Pai, with music by Dalo. I'm Anthony Filipakis.
1: I'm Alex Wilchko,
0: and this is Theory and Practice.